Join us at The Hedge for a conversation about engineering, technology, and business. In this episode, Yvonne Pepignac, Tom Ammon, and Russ White dig into being negative. Well, good morning, Tom. I think it's still morning where you are, and I think it's evening for our other person on this time. You won't recognize this name or this person. Never. <laughs> Never. <laughs> yeah. we, I remain incognito for the rest of this podcast. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> we actually got an hour or something of Ivan Pepignac's time, and this is his first his first instance on the hedge, but hopefully not the last. Uh, we, we often trade barbs with Yvonne, so that's kind of fun. But Yvonne, you wrote about being cranky, and I love that, that blog post about being cranky because people accuse me of being cranky too. <laughs> well, I, it was actually about being negative, but yeah. Yes, well, uh, cranky, negative. Contrarian, yeah, contrarian. Uh, abundantly spe- skeptical, you name it. That's right. That's right. So you we're too old. That's right. We're too old. I was going to say, on the podcast, you can't see it, but what's sitting behind me is my CPM disc. And my- <laughs> yeah, I can see that. But you know what? You're a kiddo. Mine was on eight-inch floppies. <laughs> well, I had eight-inch floppies, but that's my original set of working disc from CPM. That's a 1980, R1982, R82 version of, wow. of CPM. So. I like how it's framed. That's very nice. <laughs> so, so what was the complaint? The complaint was you're too negative. And let's talk through your answer a little bit. Like, What, what was your answer to being too negative? Yeah. Okay, so let's start with how this whole thing started. Someone asked me, but my opinion about a certain four-letter technology that shall remain unnamed. And it's heavily promoted by a vendor, and this guy was drinking too much Kool-Aid. Immediate response was, you know, trying to point out the drawbacks or the trade-offs. And I started with something like, well, you have to understand that. And he very quickly stopped me saying, well, why are you always so negative? You know, I asked you what is technology and all you can tell me about that is all the bad stuff. And I was almost on the verge of saying, well, sorry, there is no good stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, rule 11 still is true, right? All this stuff has been invented before and we've been around long enough to have seen the bad effects from the last time it was invented. Yeah, and this one was a particular instance of cache-based forwarding. And anyone that has seen any flow-based forwarding scheme, be it NetFlow or Ypsilon or uh, fast-switching cache, knows how badly that ends. Yes. People are still inventing that. I'm amazed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's incredible. I mean, I was in Cisco TAC when FastCache failed. Let me tell you, that was a bad, a bad couple of months of my life. <laughs> oh. So it was effectively cache trashing caused by address scanning, right? Right. That's correct. And, and, and ARP, right? People have this bad, nasty habit of putting quad zero on an Ethernet port facing their... Me, 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 me. (laughs) Their their internet service (laughs) provider, which which means you try to ARP cache everything 
And Fast Cash is very unhappy about this because it wants to do a slash 32 for every one of those entries. And uh, you start doing well, CMP. Uh, let me tell you that that actually works. I did that on uh, <laughs> 2501. With what, what did it have? Like 8 meg of RAM or something? It, it works. It just runs out of memory. <laughs> <laughs> A nice definition of work <laughs> for some definition of work yeah well it works some time and then you reload the router and then it works again for some time <laughs> nice <laughs> so yeah so your answer to this was you've just been around long enough to have seen all the negative stuff or or is that i mean explain your answer a little bit how that well you know uh, I, I i didn't have a good answer at that time apart from you know quoting rsc 1925 <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I sort of forgot about that. And uh, the whole thing came back when I've seen this uh, diagram that someone published uh, on Twitter, where he labeled the Gaussian distribution. And in the US view, everything from 30% onwards, so 70% of stuff is awesome. And for East Europeans, 90% of stuff is garbage. And <laughs> the rest is like, maybe good enough. So you think it's a cultural difference? Is that what you're... Yeah, well, uh, that was one uh, explanation for my behavior. Since I am close to Eastern Europe, whether I'm there or not is debatable. I got a reply from Eric Winke just today saying, well, since when is Belgium in Eastern Europe? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, it, it looks to be more like European or Central European versus American way of looking at things and someone said well no 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 it's engineering versus marketing way of looking at things so i got all sorts of different explanations of why some of us are cranky and other ones are uh, unlimitedly enthusiastic (laughs) Uh, it all depends on whether you work in sales or support i guess well it's also a matter of are you excited to learn something new because you think it gives you job security uh, yeah <laughs> I, I think but, there's i think there's a lot of people out there who don't have to live with the consequences of their enthusiasm for a technology right like <laughs> yeah there are a lot of people who don't have to support the stuff they sold yep yeah, that's that's absolutely very very true, and a lot of a lot of vendor talk or a lot of vendors go through this phase where they want to eat their own dog food, um, in order to force their coders to support the stuff that they build. The problem is that never seems to work in my experience. That just doesn't. Uh, there's always some some defense mechanism or something that kicks in that stops that from being. Well, even if you go down that path. Let's talk about Cisco. Uh, They probably need like 5% of the features they ever coded to run their internal network. So even if they believe in eating their own dog food, they're only testing 5% of the features they coders produced. Well, we probably only need 5% of the features that have ever been coded to run any network. Yeah. (laughs) But your 5% is different from my 5%, unfortunately. (laughs) Because you're running a different version of IP than I am, right? Oh, no. Yeah, we run IPv10. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
just just to be there. You know? Oh, that's how you call the dual stack deployment. <laughs> Six plus four equals ten. See, I get that. <laughs> but no, we run, we run, yeah, we run like that IPv10 stuff now. So, yeah, so that is, I mean, this is all a very valid point for network engineers to be a little bit less hyped, right, about stuff. It's not just a matter of what the salesperson is telling you. I know Tom doesn't even talk to salespeople. <laughs> oh, you're so lucky, Tom. <laughs> But, but, in, but in general, just to be a little bit less enthusiastic about new technology, and maybe part of it is just being around long enough to know that there's really no new technology. It's all old stuff. It's over and over again. Um, I literally haven't seen anything new. I mean, dramatically new for a really long time. Right. Exactly. In fact, we were just doing a history of recording network, uh, or history of networking recording. See, I just said that backwards. Anyway, where um, John Krokoff was talking about his early work in measuring TCP over SATCOM. And then he said people started trying to do IP over SATCOM. Uh, and of course, his original work was in the 1980s. And then in the 2000s, people said, oh, you know, we've got to figure out how to get different parts of the world connected to the internet. Why don't we use satellites? And they started trying to do it. And he's like, hey, guys, you know, over here, <laughs> 20 years ago, <laughs> we actually kind of solved these problems. And there's actually source code that you could look at about how we solved it. <laughs> uh, so it's just a typical... Um, even worse... I was preparing uh, my How Networks Really Work presentation, and this time it's about uh, addressing. So I was comparing, you know, IP addressing to OSI addressing to whatever, different types of addressing structures and mechanisms and use cases and so on. And uh, someone pointed me to this nice quote by John Postel, and turns out it's not John Postel, and the quote talks about the difference between a name, address, and the route. It okay. totally defines everything we've been arguing about for I don't know how long. The quote is from 1978. Right. And it was in IEN19. And IEN stands for Internet Experiment Notes. <laughs> 19. Yep. Yeah. That's doesn't surprise me. I mean, and it defines everything you need to know about naming, addressing, and routing. And we've been arguing about what someone has put down and defined very well for the last, what, 40 years? 40 years. That's right. That's right. I mean, there's always Yakov's old rule, right? You can either, your addressing can either follow your topology or your topology can follow your addressing. We, we still haven't figured that one out. <laughs> We still, we still want our topology not to follow our addressing somehow. <laughs> so, so, Ivan, why do you think, why is it that we just keep inventing the same things over and over? Is it that the minds who worked on the problem set the first time are now doing something else? I'm just curious. Well, you know that uh, cool. why. I was listening to this podcast that someone did with Douglas Kummer a long, long time ago. He was explaining how, you know, every now and then, uh, postgraduate student would rush into his office saying, I solved the QoS on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) And he would look at the student and he would say, well, you didn't. I don't know what you missed, but you didn't. (laughs) (laughs) 
Now it's just a matter of figuring out what you missed. <laughs> yeah. You see, the problem, as I see it, is that uh, we don't have any history. We don't have the fundamentals. People don't understand how stuff works. And because they don't understand how stuff works, then they rush into something and come up with the same idea that someone else did in the past, you know, based on the same assumptions, the same limitations, everyone is limited by TCP and IP, you get to the same solutions. Now, if you don't know the history, you will repeat the mistakes that others made. I see this often when I'm talking to people about ISIS versus OSPF, and they'll say, oh, but it's you know, completely different. And I don't know anything about ISIS. And, and I just use OSPF because I'm really familiar with OSPF. And you think, <laughs> you obviously don't know how either one of them work, yes. or you would realize they're exactly the same thing. Only they use different packet formats and different flooding mechanisms, slightly different flooding mechanisms. Um, well, and uh, in this particular case, troubleshooting is different. You're looking at different printouts. Right. So I would totally understand that someone who is uh, in like support or operational role would say they are totally different because the, the you know the outside behavior is different. Right. But an architect, a designer, for them, apart from the difference where the area boundary is, is it on the interface or is it in the node? They are the same thing. They are the same thing. Right. Right. ISIS is more efficient in some ways and OSPF is more efficient in other ways. Although... Yeah, but these are like 5% differences. Yeah, although, I mean, Doug Comer did say to me once, he said, you know, OSPF started out being the simpler protocol and it no longer is. <laughs> and that's because ISIS stood still while OSPF did all of this weird stuff. <laughs> well, you see, the problem with OSPF is that they always tried to fix someone's broken design. Yes, that's correct. Right. I mean, uh, at some point in time, someone should have said, stop, your design is broken, back to the whiteboard, fix your design. <laughs> oh, and we haven't learned that lesson either yet because we're doing the same thing with EVPN, just like we did with Trill. Uh, that's a continuous rolling circle as well. You know, Trill tries to fix everybody's broken network designs and then fails to ever deploy, pretty much. And EVPN is out there trying to solve everybody's broken network designs as well and becoming overly complex because of it in many ways. Uh, you know how the grumpy me calls EVPN? <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Sip of networking. <laughs> Sip of networking. Nice. I like it. <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. Everything uh, is optional and no two vendors implemented the same <laughs> subset of optional options. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. Yep. It's a standard, but everybody's standard is different. It's yeah. totally awesome. Everything is optional. That's right. We need to go back to Dan Lynch days and, and interop. And, and uh, they're actually, doing that, and uh, supposedly it even works to a large extent, which surprises me. <laughs> so yeah, they are, there are EVPN interop uh, events, and a lot wow. of last-minute coding. <laughs> a lot yeah. of last-minute coding, probably, right, to make them work. Yeah. Right. And another one we haven't figured out yet is that we keep repeating, is that we're just going to solve all of our problems with controllers. That's just another beautiful... Yeah, we can just 
throw that problem at the controller and the controller will solve it and we're done, right? Uh, RSC 9025, right? Yeah. There's exactly. nothing that cannot be solved with another layer of abstraction. Oops, That's controllers. True. That's right. <laughs> Yep. Rule 6A is that one, by the way, for anybody who's listening. <laughs> Which is pretty sad that I know the rule numbers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but nonetheless. So another that kind of brings us into another realm, which is this whole idea of standards. So you hear it all the time. I hear it all the time. We just don't need standards. We just have open source and we're done. And I mean, I even hear people say, well, we should just replace um, OSPF with ZeroMQ or RabbitMQ and just throw SPF on top of it and be done with it. And what, what's your take there? What do you think about that? Well, it's it's two always, things, right? it always amuses me that people who write this bullshit write it in a web browser which uses HTML and CSS <laughs> and HTTP and TLS. Uh, and it goes over an IP infrastructure using TCP or UDP as a transport protocol. And the whole thing is glued together with BGP and DNS. And guess what all these things are? <laughs> yes. Well, right. I mean, this is very akin to, I was sitting watching a presentation by somebody on open networking once and about how important open source networking was. And they were presenting from their Apple Macintosh. And I thought, <laughs> <laughs> a bit of a mixed message, perhaps. <laughs> not were they running like. Linux on Mac? Because Mac no, is good for no. running Linux. <laughs> no, they were not. <laughs> So that was that and was the presentation was in Google Dots, right? <laughs> yeah, <there you laughs> go. it was quite entertaining. <laughs> but yeah, I mean that is a problem. I mean we 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 tend to run into this all the time where we just want to say just open source and be done with it. Open source has the same problem we were just talking about with EVPN, right? Or Trill solving network design problems in a standard. Um, this is where standards go awry, but open source has exactly that same problem, that you can just create five different projects that all solve the same problem in similar ways, and they don't talk to each other. And Well, I have a different problem with open source. I agree with you completely. Uh, so the first problem is interoperability. It's how will two things work together? They never will. Right. Uh, I mean, we couldn't even get SQL act the same way on two different open source databases. Well, three, you have MySQL, you have Postgres, you have MariaDB, you probably have two others, and no two have the same uh, dialect of SQL. The, the real problem I have is that some people start coding before they start thinking. That's a so, problem with standards as well, but it but it tends to work itself out in the process. Yeah, that's that's you see that's the difference because with standards you have to argue your idea in a pretty negative crowd. <laughs> Going back to being cranky. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and at least some people in that crowd, like Randy Bush, have seen a few mistakes, and they're cranky enough to point them out very bluntly. Uh, whereas with open source, I mean, uh, if you're lucky, and you're doing stuff that you did in the past like three times, then yes, you have 
pretty good chance of doing something really well. But if you're in a totally new space, like, uh, for example, an open source uh, software-based switch, uh, flow-based switch that shall remain unnamed. Ah, yes, right. And that had to be recoded like three times to get decent performance. At that moment, I lose my faith in open source. Right, right. Well, the other thing that always disturbs me about open source is that I look at projects and they say... Well, you know what? We, we have these three, different, these three different kinds of databases, and they're all open source and they're all free. So I'm just going to build my controller with three different kinds of databases in it because, <laughs> hey, I'm going to use this one for this and that one for that and that one over there for this other thing. And because they all have different SQL interfaces and I want to use all three, why not, right? And so... Uh, it, 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 I hope that no one is doing that with three different SQL databases, but <laughs> I did the same stupidity and I used MySQL and MongoDB, Memcache Daemon, and no, I did not use Redis. Oh, too bad. Or Zookeeper. Yeah. Now you should have yeah. put both of those in there too. Yeah, and Cassandra. <laughs> and Cassandra. <laughs> uh, each one of these things solves a different problem. So there are sometimes really good reasons to use MongoDB and MySQL, some caching thingy in the same project. But sometimes we just use them because, you know, they're new and shiny and, oh, you should use that. That's right. Uh, that's how I came to MongoDB and uh, I still regret that. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I think a lot of this has to do with the, the shiny new thing and the appliance-based networking concept, which goes back to the difference between ISIS and OSPF and the very operational-oriented view we have of networking. And I really, really feel like I've been on a 30-year tear to get people to see networks as systems. And I don't think I'm succeeding. I think, I think it's a losing battle. Well, you see, people don't want to think. <laughs> now you're being cranky again. <laughs> yes, of course. No, now, now I'm being negative. <laughs> no, uh, honestly, uh, we are all overloaded. The last exactly. thing you need is for someone to tell you that, you know, on top of everything else you have to do, you also have to invest a lot of time into thinking things through. Right. Actually, People learning just, how ISIS works. Yeah, for example. Right. People just don't have stomach for that. And I totally understand them. But uh, that's no excuse. I mean, it's like uh, a structural engineer not taking time to figure out how to do structural analysis. I mean, right. a few broken bridges later, hmm, who knows what would happen with him. Whereas in networking, uh, there are very few consequences of people doing stupid things. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Except that companies fail and stuff like that, but it's never blamed on the network when that happens, right? Oh, of course uh, it's always the network. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Regardless of what happens, it's always the network. Right, right. And the other thing I wish I could convince people is that because of Rule 11, if you went back and learned the fundamentals, keeping up with the new technology is a lot, lot simpler. Oh, I yeah, mean, absolutely. Just, I mean, yeah. some vendor comes along with, ooh, look, it's SD-WAN, and you go, okay, now, what would that actually do? What questions can I ask that help me understand what that actually does? And what are the components of that? And then what are the possible solutions for that problem set? And now, where can I look for problems? Where can I see where there would be failures? 
or potential failures in that solution. Yeah, I have so much fun when I'm at uh, Tech Field Day events because, you know, like 15 minutes into the presentation, I know exactly which uh, question to ask to throw them off. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, well, they don't invite me to those anymore. (laughs) Oh, you're a vendor. You can't do that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How do we fix IETF so standards are faster? Wait a minute. Let's back up. Do we even want to fix it so standards are faster? Because that's kind of the point to me, that they're not fast. Well, uh, you see, the one thing that we should definitely fix, and don't ask me how. I mean, this is now me in complaining mode with having no idea how to fix stuff, is uh, how IETF works. Everyone is complaining about IETF, and uh, most of the complaints, I would say, are valid. But explain, uh, like, what about the way the IETF works? Is, is... Well, you see, uh, as you probably know, uh, I'm, sure, as you, I'm sure you know, because <laughs> <laughs> you work with IETF. Well, you have more nerves than I do to work with IETF. Uh, A, there are all sorts of random permutations of whatever three or four different acronyms you can do just to create a new draft. So your name is on a draft. Yes, that is a problem. There like are solutions. MPLS over UDP because uh, GRE is not good enough. There, there are solutions to that, but uh, at least I think so. But I don't know of anybody who has who is going to go out and actually implement them. For instance, yeah. instead of having authors, you could just say, once you get to a certain stage in the life of a draft, you choose an editor and you have contributors and it no longer becomes a matter of, oh, I wrote this IETF draft. And if there are 20 people who participated, there are 20 people who participated. I'm okay with that. I just think it's healthier. It gets the egos out of the room a little bit and lets people talk about real technical stuff and try to understand what's going on. And you're right. I mean, there are problems there as well around forming working groups. You'll see entire working groups form with only two or three participants because obviously no one cares Yeah, apart from those three. Yeah. The other problem I have personally is that everyone can have their opinion, which is not bad, regardless of whether they ever did anything useful in this area in the past. That I don't know how you solve because you want to have an open door to new opinions, right? That's part of the point of the ITF. But how do you weight those opinions and how do you listen to the right people rather than listening to the wrong people? And sometimes somebody with no experience does come up with a brilliant new idea and it just works. No, I have no problem with that. I mean, uh, I'm totally for brilliant new ideas. I am also you know, totally open to people uh, having whatever opinions, but please do your due diligence first. Yeah, and that's actually hard to some degree because many things are discussed in long threads and they're buried in the third paragraph of some email. It's like, I know this guy in philosophy who you walk over to him, he's a librarian, and you say, you know, I was looking for something on this. And he'll say, if you look in so-and-so's book on page 345, footnote three, you'll find something on that. And you're like, see, that's what we need for the ITF. We need somebody who can say, back in 1978, on this mailing list, so-and-so said something about that, but we don't have that kind of thing. So therefore, you do end up rehashing a lot of stuff uh, that maybe you shouldn't for some reason. Well, it's not just rehashing. I'm, I'm 
sort of okay with rehashing. It's that uh, some people are, you know, making uh, opinionated statements without even understanding what the whole thing is all about. Sometimes you read emails on some ITF mailing list and you go like, did he actually write that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that happens to the best of us, unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah, but you know, some people do it consistently. That's what bothers (laughs) me. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for the clarification. <laughs> so everybody everybody gets a stupid score, and if yours rises above a threshold, you can't contribute for six months. <laughs> that. <laughs> could we do that on lots of different things, Tom? Not just the ITF mailing list? Like, could we, we, we should suggest that as a thing for Slack. Like, oh, man. A Slack plug-in. <laughs> You see, the interesting trick is that some people have solved that very well, uh, like uh, all the Stack Overflow stuff. You get the upvotes, you have the downvotes, you have the useful, not useful answer, and slowly your reputations are built based entirely on your contributions and on what other people think about the quality of your contributions. Right, exactly. So maybe we need to do a Stack Overflow for routing. And then eventually you'd find out that there were only like four useful answers because routing is, is simultaneously extremely complex and, and not very complex, right? It's a very simple set of constructs, but built as a system, it's very complex. So Yeah, the, the real problem with routing is that it's tightly coupled, uh, eventually consistent distributed system. With a real-time well, distributed yes, system. Yes, near, near real-time distributed yeah. system with a recursive set of algorithms that do convergence on a distributed, not just the distributed database, but it's also distributed convergence into what is the best path or set of loop-free paths through the network. So it's... Well, we are ignoring microloops for the moment, right? Yes, right. Let's not go there. (laughs) Anyway, uh, the one thing you mentioned before using 0MQ for uh, information distribution or whatever it is, I mean, who cares? That actually wouldn't be such a bad idea. You think so? Yeah, I mean, those things were tested in environments that were way larger than any network we ever built. So, so I have my, my doubts about it only because we've spent 20 years building the flooding mechanisms in ISIS and OSPF. And, and they still suck. <laughs> I don't know. ISIS isn't too bad. I don't think yeah. it's too bad. I, you know, OSPF does, but... <laughs> You see, the problem is that we are still trying to optimize the flooding mechanisms that were invented for 8-bit CPUs with 64K of RAM. (laughs) I mean, and one solution is to use BGP for flooding and and, uh, Dijkstra for your shortest path first. (laughs) Uh, Someone's trolling. No, B- BGP has this particular problem that the update format is too convoluted. I mean, if you would use something like BGP, you know, and it could pass uh, any records around, then yeah, absolutely. But uh, it's very tightly coupled to the idea of address families and NRIs and all that. So, you know, you know how 
crazy BGP LS looks like. And it's nothing else than dumping OSPF or ISIS topology information into a format that could be transported with uh, BGP update messages. Right, which all they, yeah. they could have just actually taken the LSPs and LSAs as they are, the TOVs as they are, and just dumped them directly into BGP. But they didn't. They decided to create a new address family to solve this problem. Yeah, well, we would, we would need the JSON address family, and we're done. Yeah, that's right. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and now that the BGP update size is, what is it, 65K? Yeah. Why not? You're <laughs> solved. Everything is solved. Do JSON, 65K update? Or, okay, protobufs, okay. Doesn't have to be JSON. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. That's exactly right. (laughs) Yvonne, thanks for coming on The Hedge. I think we can quit rambling now. It's been quite entertaining. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Yep. And um, we'll try to get you on next time when maybe we have a little more definitive topic than just wandering around talking about being cranky. Well, your choice. You're the boss. And Yvonne, you're at ipspace.net, correct? Exactly. So yeah, just go to ipspace.net and start exploring there and you'll find everything I ever did in the last 15 (laughs) years. In the last 15 years. And Tom, you're not blogging yet, right? Not yet. I'm on LinkedIn and on Twitter. Okay. Great. What's your Twitter handle? Because I don't know it. Tom Ammon. Tom Ammon. Okay, cool. I'm Russ White. You can always find me at rule11.tech. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on The Hedge. Thank you for joining us. You can find The Hedge at rule11.tech.